Hey, hey, this is the Awoken Word Podcast, and I am your host, Anuj Rostogi. Today, I am ridiculously excited to share this conversation and this interview with you. I have on today, Dwayne Morgan. Dwayne is considered among the godfathers of spoken word poetry in Toronto, and he is just simply an incredible man. We actually had this conversation back on Wednesday, October 10th, and at the time that we recorded this, Duane was still just uh, wrapping up last-minute preparation and his rehearsals for his uh, 25th anniversary performance and showcase. You'll learn that Duane Morgan has actually been hustling for a solid 25 years, creating a scene and a platform for not just his own work, but for many artists. He had been really gracious in the past, having me as part of the lineup for some of his uh, spoken word and performance showcases. He is cool. He is eloquent. He's got this style and this wisdom about him that is both beyond his years and yet so fresh and so uh, just energetic. I didn't really know what to expect when Dwayne came by and I wasn't sure what this conversation would turn into. But as you'll hear, this conversation goes deep very, very quickly. We speak at length about being an artist, the role of an artist and of a person in the public eye in shaping the world. We talk a lot about being fathers, about being fathers of young daughters, which we both are, and what it means to be a man today and how we can challenge some of the hurdles and all of the bullshit that we have in society uh, throughout history. But I would say the one thing we speak the most about is this topic of race. Now, I wholly do believe that race is a social construct, but it's a social construct that is just so real and tangible for so many people that we just can't ignore it. Now, a warning to some of our listeners, if you find the subject of race uncomfortable, or if you're just plain tired of hearing about this, you absolutely should listen to this episode. This episode is for you. If you're the kind of person who's always thinking about race and race relations, you're going to find a lot of nuanced conversation here between Dwayne and I. We spend a lot of time as well talking about music hip-hop, and we touch on Colin Kaepernick, we talk a little bit about Beyonce, the U.S. civil rights movement, and what race means uniquely here in Canada. Listening back to this conversation, it was a good reminder to me that I need to slow down. I often get really excited and just really impassioned, and some of my words were slipping out of my mouth faster than my brain could process them. So I'm going to be doing my best moving forward to try and slow down a little bit so that I'm not eating my words. Anyhow, despite nearly a two-hour conversation, there's a lot of things we didn't get around to talking about, and I look forward to having Dwayne back on the show at some point in the near future. Dwayne's just quite simply a really well-versed and incredible man, so I'm excited to share this conversation with you. I learned a lot from him, and I trust that you will too. I give you Dwayne Morgan. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you.
So we are joined here today by Dwayne Morgan. Dwayne, where do I begin with you? Father, author, spoken word poet, activist, photographer, entrepreneur, writer, speaker, mentor, the list really goes on. I think you're a renaissance man of sorts. And you've always been in the background, I think, in terms of my own creative journey as a writer and an artist in this city. I know that you founded a couple of incredible annual events, When Brothers Speak, When Sisters Speak, Mm -hmm. also the Up From The Roots Entertainment Company. So you've clearly got your your hands in a number of things. I know that you've won a number of incredible achievements for your work in the community and on the scene. You've produced north of 100 events at this point. Mm -hmm. I am happy to say I've been to many of them, you know, in between doing all of these things and over over your career having opened for folks like Cardinal Official, Saul Williams, Russell Peters, and still being as grounded as I know you are because, you know, I know many of the people that, that you know and no one's really ever had anything negative to say about you. And that's, eventually I think that stuff does come out, but if you're just a genuine person, which mm-hmm. seems rarer and rarer in today's yeah. world, it seems not to be the case. So, uh, Dwayne, thank you. Just big ups for being here. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, definitely an honor. Thank you for inviting me. For those of our listeners who don't know you yet, mm-hmm. uh, who are you? Who is Dwayne Morgan, the man? What are your trials, your tribulations? Like, how do we get to know you more? Uh, well, I mean, I think a lot of the things that you said are who I am. I don't I don't create a big separation between the things that I do and, and who I am. I try to be as purposeful uh, in the things that I do as possible so that they're all uh, a reflection of, you know, some different aspect or element of of me as a person. Um, I've always uh, believed in creating opportunities for other people. When I started my career, there were, you know, a lot of closed doors. There were a lot of people who weren't very supportive of what it was that I was trying to do. And, you know, you can you can allow that to to be what is or you can change it. And my career or life to this point has really been about changing that um, and showing people that, you know, you can help people and it's not about, you know, competition or it's not, oh, this person is better or they're going to get this opportunity and I'm, I'm not going to get it. That stuff is completely irrelevant to me. It's really a matter of um, creating the platform that allows people to recognize a greater or a different or a new part of themselves that they might not um otherwise experience if this particular thing did not exist. And I think, you know, creating a space for people to share uh, is one of the greatest things because as we become more dependent on technology, we lose out on that human connection. And for me, it's always been important to maintain human connection by bringing people into a room and having people listen to each other, whether it be somebody singing or saying a poem or somebody's dancing, but just that communication that happens in a very real human um, space is what has always been very important to me, and I try to maintain as best as possible. Right. It sounds like you're coming from a, a mindset very much of abundance and not scarcity, right? It's not the, the crab bucket approach and not try and let people get out, but just create a space, create an opportunity, and just let people shine if they can. Yeah, I mean, opportunities are always going to come, and I always believe that what's meant for me is meant. No, no, nothing can stop what's what's meant for me. Uh, but if I can facilitate something that allows somebody else to receive what is meant for them, then I'm going to do that as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, I often I have this thing in, in one of my books where I speak about how uh, integrated our dreams and, and, and purposes are. And, and we don't always think about this. And I, and I say, you know, if when the when the guitar was invented, if somebody didn't somebody eventually looked at the guitar and said, hey, maybe we should make try and make an electric 
you know, mm-hmm. guitar. And if somebody didn't do that, would we have Jimi Hendrix, right? Somebody. Right. So Jimi Hendrix was dependent on somebody else before him amplifying this guitar right. so that he can be who he became. How many people have fallen in love with the guitar because of Jimi Hendrix, because mm-hmm. of Eric Clapton, because of, you know, these people. But that wouldn't have happened if somebody before that didn't say, let's make the electric guitar. So our dreams and purposes are connected beyond ourselves, right? So there's there's certain things, if I have an idea, if I don't pursue that idea, I might not be creating the platform that somebody else is going to need in order to live their best life. Right. So I see things as beyond myself. I'm doing this because somebody who might not even be born yet might need what I'm doing right now in order for them to fulfill their purpose. So it's not really about putting myself as the center of, you know, the world and the universe. And we live in a very narcissistic, egocentric, you know, kind of society. But it's really just the understanding that I'm a vessel that allows other people to find their potential. It's interesting that you talked about the electric guitar, because I, I, I do want to talk about music in, in some time here, but I, I think about evolution, biological evolution, and cultural evolution a lot, and we are a unique species on the planet in that regard. Not only do we evolve socially and culturally and biologically, but we also are the one creature that evolves things and things that we create. Like the guitar started off as some other simple instrument of, you know, two strings or between someone's fingers and they plucked it and it made a noise and then someone decides to string it on, uh, you know, a piece of wood and then so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then eventually get someone amplifying it and figuring out all of these different, you know, compositions of humbuckers and which wood works best. And, but yeah, we do that. And we all stand on the shoulders of giants mm-hmm. where we stand today. So it's it, interesting to hear you say that and creating that yourself and paying it forward in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's ultimately what we're, you know, supposed to do. And, and, you know, we, sometimes we get caught up and we, we do it, but we only do it for, our children or for our mm-hmm. family, but I believe, you know, we're just supposed to do it for humanity, for, for people in general. Um, you know, I have people who've come to my events, got on stage who don't even like me and I don't care. That, that's not what I'm there for. Right. This is not a popularity contest. I'm here just to create a space. And if you, you use the space for whatever you want to use it for, but I believe that, you know, it is, it is my purpose to create these platforms. And I think the greatest joy for me is, you know, hearing like you say, you know, that I played a part in in your life story, right? And there's hundreds of people who of could course, probably yeah. say that because they've come to my event and did this or that. And that's the, the greatest thing that at whatever your journey is, if I played some little part and I don't even need the accolades and I don't need to be in your bio and I don't need, none of that matters. Mm-hmm. I just want to know that there's somebody understands the purpose behind what it is that that I've done and they've used it to propel themselves forward. Yeah, well, I mean, thankfully, I think dozens, if not hundreds of people could quite comfortably say that about, Mm -hmm. you know, the platforms and the spaces that you've created. I'm curious to understand, you've talked a little bit about creating a, a space for others and paying it forward, but what motivated you in the first place to start doing, you know, the things that you do and you know, over the, the years that you've been doing this, have you found your motivations have changed? Have they solidified? Have they evolved? Like, w- what's that process been like? Well, um, it's an interesting thing because, um, you know, I mentioned in my Everyday Excellence book that it wasn't until around grade 10 that I actually realized that I was black. And what I mean by that is, obviously, I look at myself and I know that I'm black, but what does it mean to be black socially, 
you know, in your environment, like, what does that truly mean? When people see you, what do they see? And what does being black mean? What does being a black male mean? And that came through reading uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And through that, um, so many of my uh, experiences started to make sense in a whole new way, in a whole new light. And I actually became, you know, very militant, pro-black in a lot of my, you know, thinking, seeing a lot of the stuff that was happening around me. And um, then a few years after that, um, when I started to write, uh, like I said before, there weren't opportunities. I wasn't welcome at open mics. I wasn't welcome at poetry readings. Um, So there were really no opportunities. So I realized I was going to have to create them for myself. So from the age of 18, I just started creating opportunities for myself and for the rest of my friends who were hip-hop artists, singers, dancers, whatever. And that's how I started up from the roots. I was still in high school with nowhere to perform, but I had all of these stories that I wanted to share. And I was just like, let me create the platform. Uh, so a lot of my career has been tied to being shunned, being left out, being pushed to the margins of, uh, you know, the literary world or the poetry scene and all of these things. So I had to create platforms that that gave people like me a space. So things have changed now because the same people who pushed back against spoken word now embrace it, now fund it through grants, now, Mm -hmm. you know, see it as a a legitimate thing that is, is still here some 25 years later because while people refer to me as a spoken word artist, uh, spoken word didn't even exist as a term in Canada when I started. Right. So, you know, and and how that came about in my context is, is its own uh, storyline. So a big part of my story has been pushing back against being marginalized and creating a space uh, for people like me uh, to actually be able to, um, you know, be heard be respected um and society has changed somewhat now so you know my motivations are somewhat different because mm-hmm. i don't have to I, i'm not in that margins in the margin anymore so um so now my motivations are 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 okay i've done this for 25 years now what else can i do to 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 help other people how much do you believe society has changed in that time like if you were young Dwayne in high school today and you had the same stories. You're the same person that you were at, the, at that point in time in high school. Do you feel that it would be significantly easier for you to just get out on stage? You wouldn't have had to run into any of these situations and there would have been spaces open and welcoming to you? Do, I mean, do you feel that's the case today versus back then? Well, I think it's a, a natural human thing that we um, reject anything that's new, anything that's different, anything that kind of threatens our norm, Mm -hmm. especially for people who have been accustomed to being in privileged positions, Uh, people whose voice and perspective is always heard and always has an audience and is always receptive. Uh, And then when, you know, when we started to go out to these poetry readings, here came, you know, these black kids with these, you know, ghetto stories and all these rhymes and all this energy and people didn't have a clue what was going on. And, you know, it, you know, so then they pushed us to the sides and be like, okay, no, 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 we're the poets, you guys are the spoken word artists. And that's how spoken word was used as a term to marginalize, uh, you know, a community of people because I didn't know that. Yeah, we Uh. weren't the poets, 
we were the spoken word artists. We were the, the, the bastard cousin of the actual real poets. Um, and so, so that, you know, that dynamic became a very, you know, interesting thing. And, and for us, you know, yeah, we had these experiences. We had these stories that no one was paying attention to. No one was listening to. And, you know, we just had to go out there and start, you know, putting those, those out there and challenging, uh, those, those power structures and what people, uh, you know, were comfortable hearing. And now that spoken word has become so popular, what now happens is that you have people who, who love spoken word. They just don't like the aggression of the black spoken word or Mm -hmm. the colored spoken word. So they want someone to do that thing, but who kind of looks and sounds like us. Who makes it digestible right. for us? It doesn't make it uncomfortable, right? Yeah. We don't want it to be yeah. uncomfortable. Like we like it, but not that aggressive. Not that. Oh, now I'm going to think about social issues or whatever. We mm-hmm. just want to, you know, whatever. So it's interesting that you know the only spoken word artist really that has gone on a national tour in in theaters. It's not black. The only spoken word artist who has that I know of a national book deal. It's not black, right? But we started all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But it gets to a point where when it becomes marketable, you're going to yeah. find someone who has the essence, but not the content of what this stuff is really all about. I'm going to tell you f- flat out here. I think as a man who's not black, but I'm also not white, and I think I've been born and raised here, and I grew up in Alberta, and I've seen a lot of interesting things take shape in, in in my lifetime in terms of the dynamics between race. And I can bet that a number of people would hear the things that you're saying right now and just dismiss it as, no, that's bullshit. There's no mm. way that happens. Like, we're so welcoming. We're so open. We don't do this. We don't do that. You know, we're not trying to appropriate anyone's creative inventions or innovations. Or, of course, anyone in, of all walks in, of life is wealth, is wealth, is space. And so I believe that there are people who genuinely, I think, come from a good place, but mm. naively believe that we live in something that's closer to a post-racial utopia. Mm. And I think that I felt that we had made a lot of progress. And by, by many means, we have, right? Like if you look from the civil rights movement on until today, things are definitely much better today than they would have been 50 or 60 or 100 years ago. Mm. But we're nowhere near a post-racial utopia. And uh, it's interesting because you and I were just talking about this before. I have found whenever something has emerged out of black culture, and that is often something that is creative. That could be uh, rock music. Most of the the godfathers, godmothers of rock music mm-hmm. are black women, black men. You know, everyone from Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones to Elvis Presley will, you know, credit Chuck Berry. Even country music actually mm-hmm. originated in the Deep South from black musicians and black artists. Ray Charles used to play with country bands in in his time. So hip-hop, which is now maybe known as quote-unquote black music or urban music, is not the only thing, but it goes beyond that. It goes on to the worlds of art and, and other spheres. But to your point, the moment it becomes marketable, it's now, we like all the cool stuff about it, but maybe something about this is rubbing us the wrong way, or maybe it's playing to guilt that we have repressed that we don't want to address. Or I like this, it's cool, but it's not representing me. So I'm going to take this, I'm going to make it my own, and I'm going to cut you out of the mix. And I've seen that happen 
time and time again, not just in the West, not just in Canada or the U.S. I see it particularly with hip-hop the world over. Mm -hmm. And uh, I find it sort of a sad, recurrent irony of sorts. Yeah, Yeah, and I mean, that's... You know, that's the the thing, you know, people don't necessarily want the reminders of, you know, what reality is like, because people much rather, it's more comfortable to live the lie of what you think life is, because you think however you live, everybody else is living that Mm -hmm. way. Um, But, you know, I mean, I've been called the n-word i've been denied service in in stores i i mean i could i could we could spend the whole time Mm -hmm. talking about things that i have experienced that i wish i never experienced that i wouldn't want anyone else to ever experience but these are parts of my reality of growing up and living in this city and you know i still walk into you know certain environments and have to be on guard in case something happens, because the last thing you want to do as a person of color is just be completely caught off guard, you mm-hmm. know, as one of these things happen, because then you don't know how you're going to respond. So you always kind of have this guard up, which people now call a chip on your shoulder. But, you know, when you have all of these things that have happened to you, why wouldn't you have, who wouldn't have a chip mm-hmm. on your shoulder? If all of these things constantly happen to you in this environment that people say, oh, this stuff doesn't happen, but we live it. Yeah, and it's not an environment that you visit every now and then. It's the environment that you live in. It's the ecosystem Mm -hmm. that you live in. There was this one situation that happened in particular that I found actually really, really disheartening for me personally. I was in D.C. with a bunch of colleagues, and we were in a club that was maybe 10 minutes from the White House. And it was uh, one of these like nightclubs, dinner restaurant type things. So there's a large private dining room that they Mm -hmm. had there. Really nice space. And they had a table. It was probably, I'd say maybe like 80, 90 feet long. So there's about 40 people there. And almost like most people from Toronto, but some other colleagues that were up from the States. I would say if you took a a demographic mix, uh, you know, sort of scattered from age demographics, but it was probably mostly white. And then there's a handful of like, you know, South Asian or, or, you know, brown people. I think we had one or two black colleagues. So it's a little bit of a mix of people. So some of the people that were there that night, I've known for years at this point, we've worked together, we've shut down clubs and we're going out for work things. Mm -hmm. I know for a fact that a certain collective of, of this group loves hip hop music. They breathe it. They know all the songs. They even use that slang day to day with each other. So around 10.30, they start sort of clearing out the, some of the tables that were in the rest of the club, and it turns on to a full-on bumping club, and I honestly can't remember the name of the club. So we're in basically a fishbowl, a long fishbowl that night, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm having a couple of drinks and stuff, and then I hear like an old-school set go on, and the music is just off the hook. I haven't heard an old-school hip-hop set like this in maybe 10 years. Yeah. So I, I go outside and I didn't realize, cause I kind of had my back to the, uh, you know, to the club. I didn't realize just how packed it had gotten. And I walk out and it is just slammed and it is all black, like literally all black. And I think it's rare in Toronto even to find a single place that would be completely a hundred percent black. This was that place. Mm-hmm. So I walk in and I, I, I find the DJ booth and I go up to the guy, just, you know, like, you know, fist pump. I'm like, like, you know, bro, this, this set is off the hook, dude, man. Just, just keep doing your thing. So as I walk out, I accidentally bump some guy that must've been like 
six eight and three fifty. Like this dude was huge, mm. and I bumped him, and I, I just had a glass of water in my hand, but like a little bit of it spilled on him. I'm like, oh shit! And he looks down at me. He's like, yo, man, just like you know, high five and stuff. Huge smile. Everybody that I navigated through and around was super friendly. Mm. So I go back in uh, to meet my colleagues. I'm like, we got to get on the dance floor. This is ridiculous. Why are we still in here? No one will move. Mm. No one will come. And I'm talking like white, Sri Lankan, like, you know, a, a mix of people. And I, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back out. So I went out by myself. There was one other colleague who, uh, who was white. And to her credit, she was the only person that was besides me who was actually out there, like, you know, dancing and stuff. I go back in. I'm like, no, this is too good a set for these guys to miss, right? Mm. So I go back in. And I'm like, why aren't you guys coming out? And one colleague said, well, uh, I don't want to get molested. And another, uh, another guy, he, he said, no, I'm, no, I'm good. Mm. And then I was like, okay, I get it now. Black music's cool. Black culture's cool. Having a, a token black guy or colleague around is cool. But to take all of that and now put yourself in a black world is uncomfortable for mm-hmm. you. And all of a sudden, all of those repressed prejudices, without them even saying a thing, I, and we, I think we just had an understanding that night. I'm like, oh, okay. I know, I know what you're about now. Mm-hmm. And I felt like sick, like honestly sick, because these are people I felt like I'd known for years. And you just don't think that people that you associate with would still feel this way. Mm-hmm. So I went back out. I spent the rest of the night out there before yeah. we all kind of cleared out of there. And these people were the friendliest people. At no point did I feel unsafe. I feel more unsafe in, in a club in Toronto mm-hmm. that might be mixed than I felt amongst a, a, a crowd of maybe a thousand Many very large black dudes, mm-hmm. right? But they were super friendly. They're just good people who want to have a good time. Yeah. And I think that was a, a one of a series of events that kind of hit me again. I'm like, we're not there yet. And people of my skin color are guilty of this. This mm-hmm. isn't even just white people. This is everybody's racist mm-hmm. to some extent and mm-hmm. is harboring those prejudices. I hope that in our lifetime we start to see that evolve even further, but we're not there yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's interesting because... Um, this author, Catherine Hernandez, uh, has a book called Scarborough that was up for the Toronto Book Awards last year. And in her book, you know, she's talking about this little, this one area of Scarborough, and it's all, you know, these stories of, of immigrants in, in this area. And one of the things that I found fascinating in, in how she told the story is that she really looked at the hierarchy of race and racism uh, and how that almost becomes uh, a coping mechanism for a lot of immigrants. So, you know, you you come to this country, you find yourself in a in a certain area with a bunch of other immigrants, and the first thing you do is to figure out who am I better than here, who do I have more power than here. So there's an actual hierarchy even amongst immigrants yeah. in terms of who's at the bottom, yeah. who's on top. So who am I racist towards? What am I able to get away with and access in this environment that maybe other people can't? So, I mean, you know, you usually have the, the natives at the very bottom, then the blacks, and then everybody else mm-hmm. kind of fights for supremacy. Yeah. And the whites are always at the top. Even if you're poor, if you're white, you're still yeah. at, the, at the top of that pyramid and then everybody else. But how she looked at the nuances of that as almost a coping mechanism when immigrants come to this country was, was really, you know, fascinating. Uh, and right. I think it kind of speaks to even some of the stuff that, that, you know, you were just talking about in that story that, you know, even it's not a, a white and black thing. This is like a, a everybody in black thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and the native community, they just, they don't even make it into the conversation, but they're even below everybody mm-hmm. else, yeah. you know? Um, 
but yeah, so I mean, and this is not even a North American thing. This is no. a uh, a global thing because you know I see it and experience it in, in many of the places that that I've traveled to. It's funny though because the U.S. had a, I mean, arguably he was half white, mm-hmm. but he was a half black president that you know for all intents and purposes becomes a black president. I think many people look at that as a, a beacon of oh yeah we're we're already crossed through that, but putting up a, a black president doesn't all of a sudden negate the experience of everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting milestone. I, I think it definitely goes down in history and it says something about a certain place and time, but that doesn't change everything. Mm-hmm. My dad, so he'd run businesses, uh, you know, he's retired now, but he'd run businesses, you know, his entire time since coming to Canada and in the mid seventies when he was up North in Alberta, cause he's just such a gracious man. Uh, and I, I think he honestly just tries to put other people first and try to put their situations first. There was a lot of native reservations or Aboriginal reservations around the the place where he was in. At this time, he was a a manager in a grocery store. So one guy came in, he was shoplifting, and then my dad busted him. He called the cops, and then as the cops were dragging him out, he's like, I'm going to come and kill you. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. And he called my dad, like, the N-word and did all of these things, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the, the irony of, you know, an oppressed person calling another immigrant, you know, a racial slur that's not even accurate, but it just kind of goes to show the dynamic there. Right, yeah. Then... My dad actually talked to the guy who's the chief of that particular band said, hey, this guy's said this. He's like, oh, that's, that's my nephew. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So the chief went to his nephew and basically told him, stay the hell away from this guy. This guy takes care of our community. He's good to our people. I don't want to ever see you around him again. Don't you dare threaten him. So that's the kind of guy that my dad was. So mm-hmm. fast forward, he was running gas stations for you know, probably about 20 years. And when he'd see customers come in, I remember him telling me this completely unprovoked one time. He's like, when I see a black customer come in, I actually try to be even nicer to them than I already am. Like, he's a pleasant guy to begin mm-hmm. with. But he almost has his own mini affirmative action thing going on in his head where he's like, he believes that a black person and a white person coming into his store, all else being equal, probably faced some other experience that day that the white person didn't need to face. So it would be incumbent on him to just be a little bit kinder mm-hmm. to that person. And it's hard for me to say if that's a wrong or right thing, but that was just the kind of the way he thought. And um, you're right, within even sort of the non-white community, there are these hierarchies that we create for ourselves mm-hmm. where we can find power, where we have less power in one situation, we'll try and find more power somewhere else. Right, yeah. What does it mean to be black today? <clears throat> I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good question and, and not really a question that I can fully answer because I think the black experience is so diverse and and as as people you know we go through so many different things so i mean i can really only speak about what it's like to be a black Dwayne morgan you know today um and you know as a black male uh, i'm still very you know cognizant of everywhere that i go I, i always survey my surroundings at all times um and, you know, one of the, I actually want to write a poem about this, but one of the interesting things is if I'm ever somewhere um, and, you know, maybe people get off the bus and it's just me and, my, and somebody else walking down the street. If it's, if it's a, uh, a white woman and myself walking down the street, automatically I'm like, okay, is she scared? Does she think I'm going to attack her? Um, you know, what are the thoughts going through her head? And I'm, you know, I'm just trying to get to where I'm going to, but I'm, I'm having all of these thoughts about what is she thinking? Right. Like the, and so it's like, do I speed up? Do I slow down and, and, and create more distance? Like all of these things are, are playing out. And then when we look at 
you know, mental health in communities of color, yeah, well, we're thinking about all these things that nobody else has to think about, mm-hmm. right? Our brains are working a mile a minute trying to make sure other people feel safe, oftentimes putting ourselves at risk, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, um, for me, being being black today is, is just being, um, you know, constantly present um, and and aware of who I am, where I am in every surrounding. And, you know, a friend of mine once gave me a little stuffed chameleon because I see myself very much as a chameleon because Hmm. in every environment I walk into, I have to become a different person. I have to check my blackness in a different way. I have to check my maleness in a different way at all times because of the environment that I'm in and how it's interpreted and how it plays out. Um, And I think that is a, that is a big part of, um, one of the contributing factors to in terms of mental health with mm. um, people of color. When you, when you say some of those things, I can imagine some people hear that and they think, Oh, this is just kind of playing to the same victimhood mentality and, and dismiss it because again, it's not lived experience, right? Mm-hmm. Like until you actually live that, you can't really explain it. And it's easier for you to explain it to somebody else who is a black male than it is going to be even to me, mm-hmm. to, to be honest. How do you how do you respond to that when you know do people say that no you're 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 crazy you're delusional like you're wrong it's not like this mm-hmm. do you have people preaching to you about this not really preaching to me but I think it's it's you know it it opens the the door to conversation and I think um you know I do a lot of workshops with educators and workshops in schools and oftentimes I'll I'll you know I'll stand there and I'll say okay when's the last time you thought about your skin and most people who are white the answer is never Mm-hmm. Or they they might think of well the last time I had to put on sunscreen yeah yeah but for everyone in that room who's a person of color they thought about their skin at some point that day yep right because whether it's walking into Tim Hortons going to get gas or something your skin whether you're Asian South Asian Black whatever you've thought about it yeah because it becomes a part of every interaction you have every environment you go into this you think about it. So, you know, for those people who say it's just a race thing, I say, you know what? Talk to someone who we call obese and ask them when they walk into a room, do they think that someone sees their smile or their size? Because these people walk into a room and instantly some feel insecure because they don't know if all eyes are looking at their smile or their size. Mm-hmm. And if they're not comfortable with the skin that they're in and their size, they're going to be very insecure and assume that everyone's thinking about their, their size. Right. And when I walk into a room, people might not even notice my skin, Mm -hmm. but it's still a thought in my head that maybe they are. Right. Right. When they realize who's about to facilitate this workshop, naturally people see me and they decide, is this going to be any good? Is this guy going to be preaching to me? Blah, 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 blah. Because our mind just goes a mile a minute. Who is this black guy? What's he going to say? And, you know, so there are some people are open to what I'm going to say. There's some people who are closed at the beginning. They might open up by the end. But this just happens because it's the natural biases that we have. And the worst right. thing anybody could say to me is that they don't have bias because everybody does. Everyone does. Everybody yeah. does. Just own it and then we can move from there because yeah. everybody has bias because you can't meet. You're not going to meet every single human being. And the natural thing that our brain does is you see somebody and you try to fill in as many blanks as mm-hmm. possible. And then if you get to know them, then you can you know correct certain things but other than that your mind just makes stuff up yeah right and that's what we do as human beings we make up stuff we make up stories 
that work for us in whatever kind of capacity we need it to. And that's how we, we judge people. And that's how we treat people. We see somebody who's obese. Well, we never think maybe they, they were abused or this or that or whatever. We think, oh, they love sugar. They love to eat mm-hmm. they, this, that. They're unhealthy or whatever. We don't know if they go to the gym. They yeah. don't go to... Our mind just creates a story and says, right. this is who that person is. And until we learn otherwise, this is who this person is. And so for those of us who you know walk through the world in you know skin of color we're always cognizant of the fact that at some point people will notice this and treat us based on whatever story is in their head mm-hmm. right so um you know I, I have had those discussions but i think um you know when i when i ask people when's the last time they thought about their skin and what it meant to be or what it means to be in that skin in a certain environment and when i give the analogy of the obese person and the smile and the size they can kind of see it sure yeah, a little yeah. bit different but people get very defensive around race stuff right it so makes I, people uncomfortable yeah, so i always have to try to take it a step back or take it out of that you know that right there is it's fascinating that you have to make someone else comfortable or feel less uncomfortable with a real world fact for their convenience that you're actually in a situation where you have to worry more about the feelings of this person who doesn't want to think about or talk about or confront this idea of race. Mm -hmm. You're worried more about them than they are worried about you just having an open conversation about it. Yeah. Because I think the the common narrative is that again, it goes back to, Oh, they just have this chip on their shoulder and this stuff isn't real. Yeah. But how does the chip get there? Well, the ridiculous things I've heard here is slavery's hundreds of years ago. We never had slavery in Canada. This is a free country. Look at all these you know, successful black athletes, musicians, whatnot. So there could be a million people and you'll pick out a few success stories that for whatever reason have managed to achieve a certain level of, of success. And now that becomes a, well, if they can do it, how come you can't do it sort of thing without any real regard or, or respect for that story that led up to that moment they're having mm-hmm. an interaction with you. And you're right. I think if 10 40-year-old people walk into a room and sit down, those aren't 10 40-year-old people. That's 400 years of individual and collective experience walking into that room. And then we presume to know that story the moment we look at somebody, which is mm-hmm. ridiculous. And we all do it too. Mm-hmm. It's not just any one person. I do it. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty as charged. As soon as I see somebody walk down the street, I will start to make a story in my head. And if I catch some part of that story playing to some stupid stereotype that I don't agree with, then I'll try and correct the story. But regardless, I don't know this person. I've Mm -hmm. never met them. I'm no one to be creating that story for them. And yet even I do that and I'm aware of it. Mm -hmm. You had written this poem and I don't know exactly what the title was. I think it was Dear Beyonce, but it was about Beyonce. Mm -hmm. And this was shortly after her Super Bowl performance. And I remember listening to you drop that poem and I thought, holy shit, how did you capture that abstract an idea in such a almost, it was such a slick and subtle way. Like you sort of assumed a different clothing and I didn't actually completely catch on until the very end, mm-hmm. what the full point of your, your poem was. But I, I found that really interesting. I found that sort of a good example of this discomfort with talking about race. You know, I found that actually a really great example in terms of your work that I've seen that, of, of representing that. Can you talk a little bit about that piece and what triggered that? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, the piece was written uh, based on the uproar over Beyonce's Super Bowl performance and her um, ode to the Black Panthers um, political party. 
And, you know, after that, there was all this this fallout because, you know, Beyonce is an American icon. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people were offended that she had political views, that her political views leaned towards the black community, um, that she was actually, um, you know, paying reverence to the Black Panther Party who uh, were investigated as a... As a, a uh, an American terrorist group, when in reality, they had school programs, mm-hmm. they gave yep. kids breakfast before they went to school, they had homework club. Uh, the part that America didn't like was, here were these young black people who were aware of the law that said, you have the right to bear arms. And the worst thing that you can ever have in America is black people who are armed. Um, armed and knowledgeable. Armed and knowledgeable, yeah. yes. And so, I mean, you have this whole gun thing that's happening in America right now. Um, and and I think it's pretty much still the same. You, you have the right to bear arms. You know, America, everybody wants to have their guns. But at the same time, if we can limit how many of the black people have the guns, um, you know, we'd all feel a lot safer. Unless it's just uh, in black communities and affecting no one else. Absolutely. Right, like yeah. if it's in Chicago and they're killing each other, then, you know, who cares, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there was all of this uproar, people wanted to protest, you know, all of this, you know, kind of stuff. And so I, I wrote the poem really just to speak about, um, the ownership that people feel that they have over, you know, black celebrities who have attained a certain level of success in the mainstream, uh, almost as though these people owe them something, almost as though, they didn't come from a community mm-hmm. um, that, you know, was impoverished or that has needs or that is still struggling today. Uh, almost as though, you know, they're supposed to live their new reality and forget the reality that they came from. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it has always been and I wasn't even a fan of Beyonce until the Super, Super Bowl performance. I was like, OK, now she's turned a corner and everything she's done since then has been yeah. in this new corner. Right. Right. So I don't know what sparked it or whatever the case may be, but now I'm a fan of Beyonce. I've seen her twice since then. And and um I like the fact that, you know, we have a responsibility to use our platform to speak about things that are that are happening. Right. We look at what, you know, the whole Colin Kaepernick situation, it's no it's no different. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, I wrote a poem about him too, but it's, it, it's looking at this, this whole idea of, okay, I'm not going to, you know, people don't want to come out and say it, but there's this thought that we own you. Mm-hmm. We made you. Yeah. Like, how can you do how this? How dare you? How dare you do this when we gave you everything? Who cares about your talent? Who cares that you were on Star Search? Who cares that, you know, your parents sacrificed all this stuff for you? We made you. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of respect you're supposed to pay to us yep. for the fact that everything that you have, we gave to you, mm-hmm. right? And it's this idea that, you know, we're supposed to tap and dance and, and, and play to that um, when it's just <laughs> unre- not realistic, right? Yeah. And and so I definitely applaud her for, for that stance and I applaud everybody who uses their platform to to, for the greater good beyond themselves. Do you think that artists, athletes, people in a level of public prominence, do they have a greater or different responsibility than the average person to use that platform? Just because they have that platform, is it 
do you believe that they should be using it for that? Well, I mean, in a in a perfect world, I would say yes, but a lot of that comes from you know your your upbringing. A lot of it comes from you know your social networks. You know, if you if you just hang out in social networks that are just me, 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 you'll never think of other people. You'll never think, hey, I have this platform that other people can benefit from. Benefit from. You just think you, you, you. Um, but if you grew up, you know volunteering if you grew up doing things with kids you've come from you know certain communities then that's kind of a natural part of you and i think you know um you know through the colin kaepernick situation through things we've seen in you know in the nba um i think we'll start to see a lot more um athletes and celebrities actually trying to use their platform to to do more Mm -hmm. uh you look at you know lebron james opening up a school you look at stuff that akon has done in africa you it's like hey yeah it's great we can make this money but when we die this money is still here so what can i invest it in to help some other people while i'm here Mm -hmm. um and i i i hope to see you know more people uh doing that and again this is not something where you have to be a celebrity to do it right you know i tell people whatever you have there's a good chance you have more than enough to help somebody else. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I've done, right? right? And, you know, you can't compare my bank account and Beyonce's bank account because it'll be laughable, but I have enough, whether it be time, energy, resources, to do stuff to help other people. And, yeah, I, and, I, and you haven't had to sell your soul to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's funny because Colin, Colin Kaepernick is actually next on my list of things to talk about. I mm-hmm. find... This situation is so interesting in for a number of reasons. I think the idea that a you know I mean identifiably black man who is you know a prominent successful athlete you know at an elite level will now kneel down and peacefully and civilly disobey some sort of social decorum or norm mm-hmm. is infuriating. To some people, mm-hmm. how dare he kneel during the anthem? When from the beginning, both he and uh, you know, I, I believe the army vet that first gave him the idea of you mm-hmm. know kneeling and 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 why he he could consider that. From the beginning, he's been saying, "I'm not protesting the anthem. Mm-hmm. I'm not protesting the state. I'm protesting police brutality, largely directed at black people." Mm-hmm. Full stop. He's never changed his tune on it, and yet. If he was to if he was to get angry and yell and scream or get militant or violent, he would play into that narrative that the same you know group of people would expect of him. And, but the fact that he's just being civil and that he's got people rallying behind him, I think, is just so terrifying mm-hmm. for people. And I think that's the power in it. That's the brilliance, and I have you know a lot of admiration because he's he's one guy where. I mean, he basically did lose pretty much everything mm-hmm. along the way. You know, I mean, in, in, inevitably he has a level of, of fame and he's got support behind him. And now this Nike deal happened, which I have my own sort of qualms about. But regardless, he's actually stood up or rather kneeled for something he believes in. Mm-hmm. And many other people have followed suit. And he's raising an issue in a very important venue, which brings together America. Like football is not black or white. Football mm-hmm. is just football in America. It is is basically religion for many people. Mm-hmm. And if he's taken that opportunity to do it, then, I mean, one should applaud and understand where he's coming from instead of just demonizing him and kicking him out. And I think that, you know, if I'm the powers that be at the NFL and, and the networks, 
they're probably pretty pissed off that this guy didn't just go away. We, we, we thought we'd fire him. We thought he just kind of slipped into the backdrop. But no, he's still here, mm-hmm. and he's more prominent than ever. Mm-hmm. And that must piss them off. Well, I mean, uh, absolutely. And I think the, um, yeah, they didn't expect that this would still be an issue, that this would still be a discussion, that his name would still be mm-hmm. mentioned. And, I mean, um, attendance ratings have dropped with the with the NFL and um, their brand. Um, and there's a lot of teams that have quarterbacks that absolutely suck. And people are like, this guy went to the Super Bowl and has no job. Mm-hmm. Why are you using this guy who sucks? Like, you have no commitment to winning here because this guy went to the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. And he's not here on the team. Like, what are you doing? So there's people who can actually see there's a problem here. Mm-hmm. Right? How is this guy unemployed and you have these losers on the field? Like, this doesn't make any sense. So, you know, people can see that uh, now. Um, And I think, you know, it's very very similar to Muhammad Ali. You know, know, people hated him. Yeah. Right? And then he died a few years ago and like, oh, everybody loves Muhammad Ali, this American icon. I'm like, when he protested the Vietnam War, y'all didn't say that. Peaceful protests, stripped him of everything. And then, you know... But he didn't back down. He did his thing, you know, got more into social awareness and activities. And it's the same thing with with Kaepernick, where, you know, being able to show that I'm willing to risk everything because this stuff is that important um, is huge. Uh, it's it, it says a lot to the community. It says a lot to people. It speaks about uh, conviction. It speaks about integrity. It mm-hmm. speaks about authenticity. It speaks about, you know, living a life beyond yourself. Right. right, because most of us, am I going to give up six million dollars to to go and 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 kneel and and whatever? But he gave up everything. Yeah, right. Um, and most people just would never do that. But it it goes to asking people, well, what do you believe in? What are you willing to sacrifice for? I, and it'd be curious to see, you know, ten, fifteen years out from now, does Colin Kaepernick just become another face on a T-shirt? Because, you know, Ali has been that. He is the without question, you know, amongst history's greatest athletes and a masterful trash talker, but a man of substance, spoke his mind. Uh, I still love the whole, the exchange that he had, uh, but where he's like, I'm, I'm not going to go kill some, you know, some poor Vietnamese man, but, you know, you won't even stand for me to get my own rights here in this country, mm-hmm. right? And you want me to go kill somebody else, like for you? You know, he, he stood up for what he believed in, but now he is, he's a t-shirt, Right, mm-hmm. he is a he's a saying. He's a bunch of prints that you can buy in stores. Same with Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, in his time, from all that I've read, Martin Luther King Jr. was hated by both much of the civil rights movement and by the white establishment. Because mm-hmm. for the white establishment, like Kaepernick, he's this civil, gentlemanly, orderly, buttoned-down black man black who's man. making a very good point and making it very difficult for us to keep shutting him down. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think he, had, he learned a lot of what he did in civil disobedience in his time studying and, and going to India and visiting Gandhi's family. And then you had other members in the, within the civil rights movement who didn't like that he was trying to play to a proper white narrative. Mm-hmm. So he was loathed almost by, on both sides, but now he is the T-shirt emboldened civil rights face. Mm-hmm. Che Guevara. I've actually seen people walking down the street with that, and they have no idea who Che Guevara is. They just really like that photo and that T-shirt, mm-hmm. and everyone else is wearing it. And so inevitably, somebody fights really hard and makes a lot of sacrifice to make something happen. 
And then at some point in time, it becomes easy to whitewash that history and say we always loved him from the beginning, mm-hmm. when that's not really true. Right. Uh, and, and in most of those instances, it is not really true. And, and, and it goes back to the conversation we were having about, you know, hip hop and pop culture. At, at some point, people will be like, I can make money off of this and then they'll do it and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll make money off of the, the Martin Luther King shirts and, and that sort of thing. I think the, um, you know, part of the discussion that a lot of people don't really have is that, you know, in the case of Martin Luther King, um, a lot of his success should be attributed to Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Uh, and should be attributed to the fact that Malcolm X gave America an alternative. Right. You're going to go with this peaceful, turn the other cheek guy, or you're going to go with this armed by any means necessary guy. But either way, change is going to happen. You mm-hmm. choose which one. Yeah. And the, th- the thought of what Malcolm X's America would look like made Martin Luther King the easy choice to mm-hmm. be like, all right, if we're going to make, if change is going to happen, let's go with this guy's version right. of peaceful, you know, passive change. Uh, so I think the the other piece when we look at, you know, Kaepernick and all of these things that are happening is that um, if things don't happen meaningfully sometime soon and the frustrations keep boiling under the surface, you will see a rise in violence. You will get back to the times when they had why uh, riots in in Watts and Detroit and all of these things because there's only so long that people are going to sit mm-hmm. around and just be ignored, yeah, uh, and have these issues just uh, have washed over and have people think that these issues don't exist. Um, you know, people have their lives, their children, their livelihood at stake, uh, and because we live in a time now where none of the stuff that we see happening is new, it's just now people are capturing it on their cell phone. Yeah. Now we have social media, so now we actually see it, right? So black people being killed by law enforcement is not a new discussion. New. The fact that you can watch somebody die on Facebook, this is new, mm-hmm. right? And this is now people are like, oh, okay, taking notice to this stuff or, or whatever. But this stuff is everyday stuff that happens in North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we're actually seeing it, knowing the names, you know, um, and... If we don't do something about this, there will be an uprising of sorts because it's happened before in the States. So to think that it won't happen again would be ludicrous. How do we get enough people to care about this? Because I follow things as as close as I can, particularly in the U.S. I think Canada has got many similar issues, but is a different kettle of fish. You know, like I follow uh, Sean King on on Twitter Mm -hmm. and, and he's actually been a I think a, a conduit for learning about a lot more about, you know, what happens after it hits the news. But, you know, everyone from Philando Castile to Trayvon Martin, you know, the gentleman who was on the bridge that was shot by that white female cop, the guy who was just shot in his own apartment. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, these are just the situations where there's footage for and that are known about. Like, there's countless others that happen like this. So now, albeit there was a level of ignorance one could plead, I didn't know this was happening in these numbers before. Mm-hmm. But now this revolution it is televised and it's on a cell phone and it's on YouTube and whatnot and people know. And yet it feels like it's just rotating in the news cycle. It, it doesn't feel like – I'm not getting a sense like there's a real significant social movement to change this yet. And I don't know if that's only because it's only still affecting black people largely mm-hmm. and, and, and mostly black men mm-hmm. or it's just because we've got so much – 
we're bombarded by so much other media and, and fear and uncertainty at all points that like we're distracted very easily, even though something like this is scary and compelling and important, something else more scary and compelling and important captures our imagination. And we look the other way. How do we get people in numbers thinking about this and, and realizing that this is not their problem, it's our problem? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think that's the the difficult thing. And we've been trying to figure that out for generations because what is happening in the black community is not a black problem it's not a it it Mm -hmm. affects black people but until those people who are in power challenge their own privilege and say hey we need to actually do something about this nothing is going to change uh it goes the, the same thing with the whole you know me too movement that's not even a women's issue that's a men's issue and until men start to hold each other accountable and start to um, you know, really challenge each other in terms of toxic masculinity and all of these things. Nothing changes. We'll have Me Too from, you know, to when our daughters are are old and gray. And still the same thing because that's a men's issue. That is about mm-hmm. us taking accountability for how we think about women, how we treat women, how we sexualize women. All of these things are a part of that. That's us. That's yep. on us. That's on us. Right? So what's happening in the black community will never change until people who are not black says, we need to do something about this. And it might even, you know, t- tap into earlier parts of the conversation where we said, you know, a lot of this stuff is going to spill into, you know, other communities. And it might not be until it spills into those communities that we actually see people start to say, hey, maybe we have to do something about this. And even in the context of, of hip hop, nobody cared about what was going on with hip hop until suburban white kids started mm-hmm. listening to it. And then... It was in Congress, and I remember all this stuff in Congress, and they said, now we have to put on the parental advisory stickers and all of these things because of these messages in the hip-hop music, but nobody cared about those messages yeah. when it was only black kids listening to right. it. When they started pumping it at the at the suburbs and in the Hamptons, and the parents are like, what on earth are you listening to? Yeah. And people are like, hey, 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 we need to, this is damaging to the you know American psyche and all this kind of stuff, and now we have to do something about it, and it might not be until... A lot of this stuff reaches into those areas that people are like, hey, you know what? We need to pay attention to what's going on over here. I hear you, but my concern with that particular uh, approach is that the narrative of Black experience and culture that makes its way into the Hamptons is already, at least in my humble opinion, a distorted view of what it is to be Black in the first place. Because Mm -hmm. much of what's making its way into that music is cash, money, everything conceivable derogatory about women it's about consumerism and there's like hip-hop has got many shades right Mm -hmm. and if if we're just sort of isolating this to hip-hop and hip-hop culture hip-hop's got many shades hip-hop did not start off as like all about things and money and women and whatnot it started as a voice for people who felt repressed didn't feel heard didn't have access to instruments and whatnot and it was a social movement it was aware it was in it was it's i mean it means intelligent movement Mm -hmm. that is the entire term hip-hop but some voice of it has gotten co-opted and then that's the voice that makes its way into suburban, upper, middle-class, white America and Canada or wherever else in the West. And so I don't know that that's the vehicle that gets those rich, elite, privileged class of people to say, oh no, now we need to care about black people. Mm -hmm. That's not even the representation of the entire community that really should be telling the entire story and yet for too many people that's their only view into black culture hip-hop mm-hmm. culture and I, I think that's sad and i think it just takes more 
it takes a broader exposure. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think if I were to paraphrase everything that I had said before, um, the meaning of pretty much what I said is that it's not going to change. So, okay. It, so, That's a you know, way of saying it. Right. Yeah. So saying all of that stuff, you know, until people give up their power and then, and then that's when they're going to change is the equivalent of saying it's not going to change uh, because people haven't cared about the black experience forever. Uh, mm-hmm. And the world that we live in still is built on the backs of black labor, uh, black ideas, black experiences, mm-hmm. um, and black people still remain at the bottom of everything. We, we create things and give it away and people take it and they use it and they build stuff. Um, and we don't get the credit. We don't get the acclaim. We don't, our communities don't end mm-hmm. up better as a result of these things. So nothing really is going to change because again, you know, we were talking uh, earlier before the podcast just about capitalism and part of capitalism is taking as much as you can for free and using it to make money. Mm-hmm. And if you can get it for free and what, then why, you know, why not? People take it and they use it. Uh, so, I mean, I don't see much going to change uh, maybe in my lifetime. So I grew up in, in Edmonton for uh, much of my life. And growing up at that time, you know, kind of in the 80s, early 90s, it was interesting because I've, I've always been very aware of, you know, the color of my skin because I was, uh, you know, in a couple of small towns in southern Alberta before moving to Edmonton when I was about seven and then the community that we were in was a little bit mixed, but you're you're still constantly aware of, of the color of your skin. I, my earliest memory of being aware of my skin color is when uh, I was in a small town in southern Alberta, and I would have been about four or five. I was playing a few doors down on a front lawn of a, a friend's house. We were just kicking a ball around. And his mom ran out, and uh, she grabbed him. As she basically carried him, picked up his ball, and ran inside the house, I heard her say, you can't play with him. He's not like us. He's different than us. Mm. And I can remember my stubby little brown fingers as I was just basically kind of running home. Like, I didn't really get too upset about it, but I was was kind of running home and, like, skipping around on the sidewalk. And I kind of stopped for a second. And this is a very vivid memory. Early evening, the sun's kind of shining down. It was really picturesque. I looked at my stubby little fingers, and I I looked at my arms, and and I thought to myself, what's different about me? And I kind of wiggled my fingers and stuff and just kind of paused on that thought, and I just kept moving. Mm. And... By the time I got to junior high, Edmonton was kind of in a weird space, I think, for many reasons. So there was a lot of racism by the time I was in junior high, high school. And so hip-hop for people of particularly, I think, uh, you know, South Asians or brown people in Canada, because in, at that time, we couldn't find a comfortable place within white society. And there was this other thing, which is hip-hop and black people, which became something that we could relate to in, mm. to an extent in our experience. So you started to see a lot of camaraderie between black and brown people. And in many ways, I think that brown people, because there's a lot less black people in Canada as a whole, like Toronto aside, there's a lot less in general. Mm-hmm. Brown people have kind of been carriers of some parts of that hip hop culture in a way, because it's the dominant voice didn't accept us. And then there's this other group of people who are doing some cool shit that I, we can identify with. And musically, we're on the same page in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. So we kind of rolled with that. So hip-hop kind of entered my life that way and has really never left. But I find people the world over who have you know benefited from all of these contributions that have come from black culture constantly co-opt it and then cut black people, as you're saying, kind of out of the mix mm-hmm. uh, from the means of production or you know from even being able to get credited for what they do. And I feel as, you know, as a second generation immigrant here, I owe a lot to black culture and to black people because I've benefited from 
the crazy old white racist guy who will say, well, you know what? The Asians are doing well. The Indians are doing well. Why can't you do well? In his hierarchy of people, he's putting us somewhere in the middle only because black people are at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm, I'm the benefactor of that really sad situation. But I think that we owe, we owe black culture, I think, the credit that it's due for all the things it's contributed in, in much the same way, you know, here we, I think we owe a lot to Aboriginal brothers and sisters for just letting us stay, mm-hmm. right? Like my ancestors didn't come here and murder and slaughter a whole bunch of Aboriginal people, but I'm now here and my parents came here and we're the benefactors of some of that mm-hmm. stuff that happened mm-hmm. in history. So it would be naive of me not to at least respect and honor that right. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's interesting too, because, you know, I've, I've seen in the last few years, uh, various stories and things about you know the spoken word scene in in Toronto and and I'm floored at any story that speaks about spoken word in Toronto that my name isn't mentioned in because it's it's unheard of how how can it be the spoken word term didn't even exist until my movement started so how can you have stories about the history of spoken word in Toronto my name isn't even mentioned in the story but it just goes again to see how we get written out of our own uh, histories and and experiences, whether on on big scales or small scales, but it, it happens all the time. You you touched on this a little bit earlier. I want to kind of pivot a bit. So you have a daughter, mm-hmm. and she's eleven. What does it mean to be a father, and particularly a father to a to a young girl? Um, you know, for me, it's really a matter of being an example. Um, trying to be a uh, a friend trying to uh, shift the narrative in terms of what society believes, um, you know, men are supposed to be, how women are supposed to be treated. Um, you know, I'm part of part of my, you know, commitment to Me Too and all of these things is being able to call out when things aren't appropriate, being able to teach her um when song lyrics aren't in her best interest, what are they actually saying about, you know, women, um, you know, looking at how women are represented on, on TV and movies and media and having those discussions with her so that she doesn't believe that this is how it's supposed to be, but she understands, okay, well, this is a character, this is a story, this is whatever, this is Mm -hmm. not who I am supposed to be. Right. Um, so, you know, for for me, being a father has been uh, probably the the best hat that I've worn of all the hats that you've, you know, listed at the very beginning of the podcast. Um, it's, it's definitely a, a challenge, I think. Um, you know, having a girl, I mean, there's no, there's no manual for, for parenting, so you have, you, you just got to figure it yeah. out. But I mean, you know, as a man having a daughter, then that's even more to figure out because you're like, hey, I have no idea what your experience on a daily basis is mm-hmm. like because, you know, I didn't have that. Um, so it's also a lot of learning. It's, it's, it's not just a matter of, you know, me teaching her what I know, but it's what can she actually teach me, you know, as, as well. And, you know, one of the most interesting things I think I ever did with her um, is, you know, I sat with her one day and I was like, um, okay, well, obviously, you know, I've never had any practice, you know, being a parent before. So how would you say I'm doing as a parent and having a discussion where she wow. actually got to tell me how she thought I was doing as a parent? And it, it was a really, you know, interesting conversation because I don't think, 
you know, parents ever really ask that of, of their children. I don't think children ever really think about it. It's just like, yeah, that's my dad or whatever. But, but, you know, based on what you see on TV, based on what you hear from your friends, based on, you know, whatever is in your head, how do you think I'm doing? Um, and, and then, you know, the things that she thought I could do better at, I was just like, okay, now this is stuff I can work with. Right. Because now it's not me just trying to make it up. This is me hearing directly from her, what she would like more of and stuff, and then me being able to act on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think more parents should probably do that. I'm making a mental note right now. I I, I should do that. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and then I think it, it takes a lot of the guesswork out because mm-hmm. instead of you know you beating yourself up or thinking that you're not on the right path, maybe you are on the right path. Maybe they like some of the stuff that you do that they think maybe they don't like. Right. Maybe there's other things that they want more of. And when you give them the power to actually say, yeah, this is what I think. You're just like, okay. You know, I mean, it's scary because you're just like, well, you know, you're just here trying to do your best and you don't want to get, you know, totally slaughtered by whatever they say. But I think, you know, her being able to see that, that vulnerability, accountability, all of Mm -hmm. these things are so important because now it makes me a a real person. Right. It's not, I'm just dad, which is, you know, just a title, but dad is actually a person with feelings who could say, oh, I didn't realize that. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and these things are so important, right? Because then again, it just changes the whole dynamic and the narrative of what parenting is like. And then you create that opportunity where, well, if we could talk about this, we can talk about anything. Right. Right? And I think so. Uh, that was probably the, one of the best, you know, conversations I ever, I ever had with her. How has it changed or impacted you as an artist? Um, well, you know, a lot of the work that I create now is, you know, inspired by my role as a father. It's really looking at, well, what can I actually do in this world that she's going to inherit? Um, so it's even further taking myself out of the equation mm-hmm. and really looking at, you know, what what more can I give? What more can I do? What what are things that are happening now that I should be, you know, putting more attention um behind so i think the um you know it's allowed me to see the world through a different set of eyes um you know listening to her experiences with you know kids at school or you know when she's at gymnastics or whatever and how she sees the world um you know it it just gives me another um set of eyes to pull insight from that i can then share with people is she aware of her, of race already? Very, yeah. yeah. She's uh, very aware of, of race. Um, you know, she can call things out when she mm-hmm. sees it or when she, you know, feels it. Um, and yeah, she's been involved in her school around things that, that have um, had to do with race and how certain kids were, were treated and, and, and this sort of thing. So um, yeah, at her age, um, she is aware, and I think it would be a, a disservice um, to her if she was not raised with that awareness. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as I said before, you never want to be caught off guard. Right. Um, and I think that's another thing where, you know, um, parents who have children of color, you don't get to just raise the kids in, in, hey, go out there and conquer. You have to say, hey, with the skin that you're in, there are certain experiences that might happen. Mm-hmm. 
And when these experiences happen, this is what it might be about. This is how you conduct yourself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because we know even in um, the school system, black kids get suspended more than other kids, expelled more than other kids. The cops get called more on black kids than other kids. These things are statistically proven in the Toronto school board. We know this. So how do I ensure that my daughter stays in school? Well, then I have to give her the tools and the resources to know how to handle many of these situations that could pop up that ends up getting her suspended or expelled or all of these things. And I wish that I never had to socialize her to know these things. Well, I imagine even at best, even if she's you know never in that situation herself, she sees enough other people like her going through that, that's going to have an impact too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like it's going to shape to some extent your experience and your worldview as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, um, maybe last year or the year before, she got off the school bus and, and there's another uh, young black boy who's a year or two older than her well, who gets off at the same stop. And there was an issue on on the bus, and there seems to always be issues on this bus. So she came, and she was telling me about the issue, and she's like, you know, the bus driver yelled at him, and she's like, oh, Marion, stop being a thug. And I'm just like, you know, it's interesting that of all the things you could choose to say, you call the black boy a thug. The, the young white kid that he was play fighting and horsing around with never got called anything. So then it says, you know, for this bus driver, when you look at this young black boy, the bias that you have mm-hmm. is that this is his destiny to be yeah, this yeah, dog, yeah. right? Uh, and that's what's going to come out of your mouth. And that's why you're going to call him out and not call out the other kid because you see in your head that this is his destiny. He's going to be this thug. As a young black kid, no one ever says, hey, you doctor, hey, you lawyer. They're, hey, you thug, you rapper, you basketball player, you whatever. Uh, and this is the narrative that is pushed on to these kids. And when you want to be something Outside of that narrative, people often crush your dreams yeah. because that's not for you. Yeah, or they tell you stay in your lane. Yeah, absolutely, right? Yeah. So these microaggressions happen all the time and you have to be able to build her resolve around these things mm-hmm. uh, because life is not fair and it's never going to be fair and you shouldn't expect it to be fair. Right. And based on who you are, these are some of the things that you will have to face but these are also some of the things that you can do to overcome them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I tell whether it's her or whether it's, you know, the schools that I speak at, I say excellence trumps every social negativity that's out there. If Agree you a million percent. pursue yeah. excellence, it doesn't matter how racist yeah. people want to be. They can never stop someone who's being excellent. Yeah. Right. You look at NBA, you look at lawyers, you look at anything people want to do. If you are committed to being excellent, sexism is not going to stop you. Homophobia can't stop you. Racism can't stop you. You are unstoppable mm-hmm. if you have committed yourself to becoming excellent. And, but you cannot become excellent without first falling in love with yourself. You have to believe that you have what it takes to be excellent. Yeah. You have to yeah. believe that you deserve the fruits of the labor that come with committing yourself to excellence. So when I work with young people, one of the first things I try to do is get people to acknowledge the love that they have for themselves. Because so many of us are walking through society and we hate ourselves. Mm-hmm. We hate everything about us. We're, we're conditioned to look at our reflection and see everything that's wrong with us. And how do you live a successful life when even when you look at yourself, you see negativity? Mm-hmm. You can't have a positive life when you look at yourself and see negativity. So, you know, working with kids, working with my daughter, the, the number one thing first is 
trying to build that level of let me love myself. It keeps coming up that we talk about love and talk about tolerance and acceptance of others. It starts right here. It starts Mm -hmm. with yourself, right? Like if you can't love yourself, it becomes, I don't even know how it's completely possible to love someone else if you don't love yourself. And loving yourself doesn't mean that you think that you are perfect and without flaw and Mm -hmm. without need of improvement. It just means loving and accepting yourself. And I, I believe that that sounds so damn simple Mm -hmm. and yet it's so hard for us to do. I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, but I do believe the system that's organically manifested itself around us is based around creating self-loathing and not self-love, self-doubt and not self-discipline. And in the process of that, money is made. So if you don't love yourself, if you don't love the skin you're in, if you feel you could be a little bit fairer, a little bit thinner, if you feel that you should be wearing that particular hat or those particular shoes or driving this car, whatnot, and in doing so, you will get closer to that sense of self-love that you're chasing. That false pretense is what's sold to us, and that is the engine that fuels the system that we're in, right? Mm -hmm. Because without fear and uncertainty, most of what we have around us wouldn't exist, and It's not to say we need to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I do believe most people are inherently good and most people want to live in peace and most people would ideally love to be able to love themselves, but they've never actually been shown how to do that or even told that they should do that. Many people, for one reason or another, whether it's color of the skin or the way that they look or weight or social class that they come from or family situation, much of society is telling you that you're not fitting this perfect narrative and you should hate yourself. You should loathe yourself. Hey, buy the shit over there though. It'll make you feel a little bit better and get you a little bit closer. Mm -hmm. And until we address that self-love, all of this stuff, it's window dressing. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because, you know, we've, love is associated in our society with romance. Mm -hmm. Um, But love is universal. So when I, when I'm working with young people and, you know, some young person does something or whatever and I and especially with males and I go up to them and say you know what? I really love you man and to look at they don't even know how to deal yeah. with this like what are you what are you talking yeah. about you know what I mean like this this rejection and this defensiveness or they're just overcome with emotion because no one has ever said yeah. I love you like they don't think that they're worthy of love but they'll look for love in in sex they'll look for love in you know their interactions with their peers or whatever and they won't necessarily call it love but mm-hmm. but i mean love is that thing that fuels all of us but yeah. we have to learn again to be able to say to somebody that that you just met but had a really you know interesting or or profound experience with hey yeah i love you man have a great day or whatever mm-hmm. and 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 that's what's missing yeah. right because everything stems from that love and everything stems from you believing that you are are lovable. And I often say to, you know, to, to young people, I say, okay, first thing you have to understand is that where you are in life, you put yourself there, right? You are responsible for every single decision that you have made in life. And where you are in life is a result of all of these decisions that you have made. Sure, things have happened to you. Sure, people have yeah. done things to you. But you've chosen how to respond to those things. And you've chosen how much of that you have brought into this moment of your life. Right. The second thing is... Every choice that you make is based on the level of love that you have for yourself. So if you hate yourself, you are going to make decisions that are based on, I hate myself. And you're going to find yourself going deeper and deeper into this negativity. But when you love yourself, the choices that you make are very different because they're made for a different reason, for a different purpose. Mm. They come from a different place. Right. Right. So the more you love yourself, when you're at that fork in the road, it becomes easier 
to make a positive decision because the decision you're going to make is based on love, not self-loathing, not on hate, not on I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I'm not all of these kinds of things. So, you know, I, I often will go into classrooms and I'll put, you know, I am on the board and then under it I'll put am I on the board. And I said, everyone in this room lives based on one of these two sentences. You either live based on I am, which mm-hmm. is an affirmation, right. I am great, I am excellent, I am whatever, or you live your life questioning yourself, am I worthy, am mm-hmm. I good, am I excellent? And those are two completely different ways of seeing the world and seeing yourself. So I try to get the kids to, to, to be the I ams and affirm yourself, and the more you affirm yourself, because life's going to tear you down no matter sure. what, yeah. right? Don't be the one who's also tearing yourself down, right? Figure out your I ams. Who are you? And then just go out there and be it. What do you think is missing? Like, what are we missing in society that we keep forgetting about that one simple thing? Even though you can flip through Facebook or YouTube and magazines and everything's about self-love. So we know the message. We've seen the message. Mm -hmm. Yet we don't necessarily internalize it. Why do you think that is? Well, I think the answer goes back to what you were speaking about before. If everyone fell in love with themselves, then a lot of the skincare products fall off the shelf. A lot of the a lot of the economy collapses because a big portion of our economy is based on self hate. It's mm-hmm. based on you not accepting yourself, you not loving yourself. So you need all of these things to fill the voids that you think you have. But if you understood that everyone has voids if you understood that the voids you have don't have to be filled by superficial things, they just need you to accept that this is who I am at this moment in time, then you don't need those products. So self-hate is good for the economy because you could walk down any street Mm -hmm. and look at how many of these stores survive on self-hate. And you'd be shocked and amazed to see that that is a big segment of our economy. Nobody would call it that, right. the self-hate economy, but it's there, and it's a big part of how our society operates. I've brought this up a few times. Again, I don't think that there's a bunch of evil geniuses somewhere in a boardroom that are plotting to to, to rule the world in a, in a very specific way. I think that's uh, far-fetched. Mm-hmm. But the way systems have organically evolved certain people have power and certain people don't. And in order to keep the power, you need to keep everybody else scared and distracted. And in the midst of all that, I've always thought, why is, albeit there are biological differences, and I I fully believe because the data says so, there are biological differences between men men and women at an aggregate level. So men may gravitate to certain uh, types of work or certain fields or certain disciplines more than women in aggregate, but any individuals within those groups will have their own unique tastes and and, mm-hmm. and medley of, of interests. But I, I thought to myself, why is it that you look at kids' toys and many of the kids' toys that are promoted to girls are dolls, they're about fashion, they're about uh, hair care and all of this sort of thing. And the stuff for boys... It could be science, it could be dinosaurs, it could be um, you know war, it could be trucks, it could be remote control stuff. It's, it's often a little bit more techy and a little bit more about working together as a team and whatnot. And so this is kids' toys in kids' aisles at a Toys R Us. And then I already had that idea going, and then I was at a shopper's drug mart nearby, and this is about four or five years ago, and then it hit me. This uh, magazine rack that they had, if you looked from left to right, it was sort of, you could see it organized from left was women, right was men. 
And if you went all the way across, it started off with the examiner and inquirer, like just trash mm-hmm. stuff for, uh, you know, junk food for the mind, basically. Then it got into some of the, the women's teen bop and fashion and whatnot, where everything is about sex tips and makeup and fashion and whatnot. And I'm not hating on fashion. I think there's value in dressing your best and, and looking stylish and, you know, finding a way to express yourself and all that. Mm-hmm. So there is a place for that, but, you know, fashion and whatnot. And then it gets into house and home and gardening and knitting and and stuff. Then you get some arts and crafts in the middle. Then you start to get into popular mechanics and airplanes and hunting and fishing and stuff. Then the news stuff like Time and Walrus and The Atlantic, men's fitness and stuff. And then towards the end, you'll have like the wrestling magazines and the UFC magazines Mm -hmm. and whatnot. And if you look at that and you draw a line down the middle, the stuff that was... I want to call it more substantial in terms of it's either about the world, it's about social issues, it's about politics, it's about, you know, self-betterment, all those things. That stuff was sitting mostly in the guys section and it wasn't sitting in the ladies section. Mm -hmm. And it hit me then, and I don't feel it's a conspiracy of a small group of people, but I, I believe that society as a whole conspires in such a way to keep women from reaching their full potential. Mm -hmm. Women are as capable, if not more than Men, uh, I do believe in many regards, I feel like we're ogres many (laughs) times and they excel the moment we give them a a chance, the moment they have a chance to get educated and whatnot. They do tremendous things and they're, despite all odds, women have risen up and accomplished so much in a very short time here. And yet I believe there's still an old guard of men somewhere thinking we can't let that happen. Mm -hmm. We can't lose our power to the women. And so keep them distracted, keep them thinking about who's dating who, who's sleeping with who, what makeup to use, whether you're fair enough, whether you're dark enough, should you get a tan, should you not get a tan, all of these things kind of wrap up preoccupying young minds of young girls, while guys are allowed to, they have a little bit more latitude to think about other stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's something when I'm, you know, in having a daughter now who's who's seven, you know, my wife and I try to expose her to everything we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And we don't like try and steer her any one way. You want to be a dinosaur, be a dinosaur. You want to be whatever, be whatever. But just allow yourself to experience yourself in the same way that we should allow our son to experience himself. And l- let's see where that goes. Yeah. But we try to steer that ship too often in very specific ways for boys and girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And I I mean, I have poems about the dolls and I have poems about the books and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I But I do think that a lot of that distraction is also tied to you know, um, when feminism started to take rise, when when women started to earn their own money uh, and there started to be real battles in the homes about who is the breadwinner here, mm-hmm. um, there needed to be distractions. There needed to be things for women to spend their money on to ensure that the man still had more money. And I think that that is also a very deliberate thing hmm. in terms of a lot of these things, and thought the, about that. the makeup, the these things or whatever. Okay, you spend your money on all these frivolous things. And at the end of the day, I still have more money. So I'm the breadwinner. And I think that is also part of how we uphold patriarchy and, and, and um, you know, our sense of who we are as men. Well, you know, she's a woman, so she's into, you know, the... Uh, inquirer and all of these kinds of nonsense, but I'm into the important things mm-hmm. about the world because that's what I'm supposed to be as a man, um, which ultimately is ridiculous. But again, people get desperate when their power is threatened. Right. And, I, and I think that, you know, women being able to go out there and, and earn money and, and possibly become the breadwinner in the home has and continues to be very threatening to a lot of men. It's also in concert with this other thing that we were talking about earlier, and it sounds like you're starting to do more work even in this space, but 
at the same time that women are succeeding, despite many odds stacked being against them and are doing well in many spheres from science to technology to politics and media and whatnot, as they rightly should, at the same time, men are losing some grasp on that disproportionate power, I think, that Mm -hmm. we have had historically. And we're also still being told to a degree that we can't talk about it or we're not necessarily able to share the things that we feel, whatever those feelings might be, like to just flat out cry, to be able to share a feeling or an uncertainty or self-doubt. There's still this idea of machismo that that circulates and it's dying. It's dying very slowly, I think, mm-hmm. in some ways that don't you can't cry, man up, be this, be that. You have to be like, you know, the alpha dog. You know, don't show your feelings and stuff. Don't show your weakness. We've never been able to really talk about these things well enough to face them, confront them and get ahead of them before things get too far before that, you know, that repressed feeling turns into violent outlash or some other, you know, ill behavior. And I think we do a better job with young girls and women in terms of helping them be in touch with their feelings. I think we need to do the same with, with our boys and with mm-hmm. our men mm-hmm. as never too late. Like, I'm again. I'm 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 very fortunate to have the father that I do because I think he's been an incredible role model and I credit him tremendously for being the man that I am. And he was never one to not talk about your feelings and stuff. Like he'd just be very open about. It. But mm-hmm. I know I've grown up with a lot of people where that wasn't the case. Right. And then you go through life thinking to be a man is to put on this face of strength for the world when inside you're crumbling, mm-hmm. and that doesn't help anybody. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's it's we have to create the the space where you feel safe being like i'm not okay i'm not all right right now but this this idea of you know you're going to be ridiculed if if you're if you're soft if you cry if you're vulnerable all of these kinds of things have has paralyzed a lot of men into this this fear of you know what's going to happen am i you know uh, my masculinity is mm-hmm. is is being called into question and all of these things which at the end of the day is, is utter nonsense yeah um but you know, we live in a society that still prides itself on these very old school ideas of what masculinity is supposed to be. And, and that definition hasn't moved with the times because, you know, back in the day when women couldn't really work outside of the home and the man was the breadwinner, there were certain dynamics that were at play. Um, some people still uphold those, but overall society has moved and changed, but right. our definition of masculinity hasn't changed with society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for someone like me who will, you know, cry and, and, you know, be vulnerable and, you know, watch, you know, a movie with my daughter and, and, and be emotional at things that happens in the movie so she can actually see again that her dad is human, mm-hmm. um, you know, people would say, well, that's not masculine behavior. That's not how it's supposed to be. She needs to see you tough and and this or whatever. And I'm like, I think she'll be better off by seeing that, you know what? I'm human, right? Things affect me. Um, I have feelings. I'm not happy all the time. I'm not good all the time. I'm not okay all the time. Um, And I think... I think that is is where we need to be going in terms of the shifting definition of who is a man, what does masculinity look like, um, you know, how do we raise, you know, and, and it's very interesting when we look at how we raise kids because, you know, we, we raise girls um, with an awareness of what to expect from boys, mm. but we don't really raise boys to not do the things that we're protecting the girls from. 
right? The boys just, as you say, they get to just go out there and, and do stuff, and we hope they don't get into trouble. But the same things that we're protecting the girls from, we should be teaching boys, don't be this person. Mm-hmm. But where we don't socialize them in in that kind of of way. And I think that's part of where, you know, we're missing the point because it doesn't make sense to protect girls from guys if we're not raising guys to just not be that person that they need to be protected. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd written a poem a while back uh, called I Am Sorry, and it was specifically about that Brock Turner, that mm-hmm. the, the swimmer, quote yeah. unquote, that you know r- raped or molested that girl behind a dumpster. And he got off, I think, with a three-month mm-hmm. sentence or something. And this idea of rape culture, I mean, it's a hashtag that, that floats around a lot. And I think to some to some extent, people get tired of hearing terms like this, but... Rape culture is, I think, a, an umbrella term for talking about just the way that power dynamic between men and women and how women are treated in that context. And cases like this still happening today where, you know, a young guy can still have his father writing a letter into the judge saying you're going to prison is going to ruin his swimming career. He really loves steak. Apparently, he wrote down the letter. He really loves steak, you know, and he's going to break him and whatnot. So there's a lot of worry about what's going to happen to the guy when he perpetrates something like that. And it's almost as if whatever happened to the girl is insignificant. Mm -hmm. And uh, this seems to happen kind of time and time again. The whole Me Too movement is basically kind of arising out of this nonsense. Mm -hmm. And rape culture doesn't necessarily mean like specifically just the act of rape itself, but also that being uh, a boy doesn't give you any better privilege than being a girl or shouldn't rather inherently like you are both human beings and you should treat each other with a mutual sense of respect no one should be taking advantage of each other there should be a sense of goodwill amongst each other but two individuals can have that and still you live within a certain power dynamic where the guy might get the promotion that the girl doesn't even if she's got better qualifications or Mm -hmm. is demonstrated better just because of the culture around it and I think it's then incumbent on us as boys and men to be aware that things work like that and then to realize that's not how they should work and for us to be helping to change that Mm -hmm. right i think we need to kind of figure out a way that we can help each other together through this because that's how we like grow as a whole right any one person succeeding doesn't really make a difference for anyone yeah and i mean i think that that even ties into you know my when sisters speak show which is you know a show that i do every year and all of the artists on the bill are women and, you know, as a man, this isn't something that I have to do. Why, like, why do I have to put on a show that I can't even perform in? But I believe it's a necessary th- thing to do because I have the platform to do it. Right. So if I can use my platform to create a space where women can speak about what they're going through in an uncensored format, I don't say anything to these women about what you can and cannot say. All I do is I create the platform. You, y- Y'all use it. Say whatever you want to say because... This opportunity doesn't exist anywhere else. So if I have the opportunity to create it, then why wouldn't I do it? And I think, you know, more men in whatever walks of life we find ourselves in, if there's a way to create that equity, um, we should be looking at doing that. And that's part of how we check our privilege. Mm-hmm. And that's how we we actively move towards creating a more uh, just society where people right. feel as though, yeah, you know what? There are actually men out there who get it who yeah. care, who are willing to do something, not just, you know, retweet and, 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 and send stuff out, but are actually doing something that creates the space for these things. Right. It's, it's interesting that you put it that way because I have to look up who actually uh, 
pen this quote, but for a person in a position of privilege, even equality feels like oppression, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think we're in a position today where old guard, you know, men from a previous generation or men that have been raised with that same mentality, this is going to feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, it's probably going to suck for a lot of people because you've been the top dog for so long and you've had all of these privileges and you've been able to do whatever you want and get away scot-free, that time is already ending and it has to go. And for other men, it's sort of a period of adjustment where we still have to realize that there is this level of privilege. And I find people get really uncomfortable with the term privilege. No, I don't have privilege. It could be that that person may have gone through hard times or had a rough time at home or been through, you know, a death in the family or whatever. So they've they've had some odds stacked against them. But that doesn't mean that privilege and other challenges can't coexist at the same time. Mm-hmm. And at any given point, I might not, me personally, I might not be in top dog position of privilege because I'm not a middle-aged white man, blue-eyed and blonde-haired. But I'm still a man. So relative to somebody else, I'm in a position of privilege and Mm -hmm. I should be aware of that and be able to figure out, okay, what does this mean for other people in the room, in this place and what what can I do about it? And I think that's really critical. And to be, we shouldn't be uncomfortable with these concepts of guilt and privilege and whatnot, because until we actually face them head on, we don't get anywhere. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's... um Hopefully the example that people see, you know, from from me doing, you know, When Sisters Speak, um, and I have another show, I can't remember what I called it, two years ago, where it was um, pretty much singers and hip-hop artists, but all women, uh, you know, on on the bill for that, and, um, you know... It's it's I've gotten to a point in in my life in my career where you know I'm I'm cool with where I'm at I'm cool with the things that I've done, and you know to hear from women what it has meant to them to actually be on stage at in an event where it was only women, um, you know it's very affirming for me because I'm like well yeah there there should be more of this right. happening but if it's not and i can do it then yeah i'm i'm going to do it but um i think that just we just need more men um really just checking themselves and checking their privilege and understanding that you know in this conversation yeah i spoke about you know racism spoke about bias but as you said there are certain situations i walk into where i have privilege mm-hmm. right so it's not that you know you're the victim of life circumstances all the time for yeah. for all of us at some point we're going to walk into an environment where we have privilege in that environment yeah. and it's just understanding that in this moment i have some privilege here that maybe other people don't have and yeah. and what does that mean what can i do with it well just that statement right there like the fact that we're able to walk at all like compared to the circumstances some people are living through for for whatever reason you know, we're, we're in a sense of privilege in that this entire world has not been designed for somebody who's got um, some sort of physical challenge. Not every place is wheelchair accessible and whatnot, mm-hmm. but we can just kind of walk in wherever we go. And there's all sorts of these dynamics at play that we're not often cognizant of. We're just mm-hmm. not conscious. And I think it would probably overload our brains at times. I'd be like, am I in a position of privilege right now? Or like, am I in, a, in an oppressed stage right now? And I don't think that that's the point. It's just really maybe to be aware at any given point in time of yourself and the people around you and how do you, in an ideal state, how do you leave that room in a slightly better way than you you found it, mm-hmm. right? Almost like that you're a guest in someone's home and you leave the room a little bit better than you found it. Like, is there something that I can do here in this moment to make this place a little bit better? And you're, you're clearly living and, and breathing that day mm-hmm. in, day out. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just try to do, you know, whatever it is that, that, I, that I can with the position that I find myself in. So before we wrap up, I, I think one more topic I'm kind of curious to get your take on is this increasing polarization, it seems, in the world. Maybe it's always been, it's always been polarized to some extent. I don't know if it's more so now than it ever was or if it's just more obvious, but I personally despise the terms left and right uh, because I feel it, it puts people at odds when they really shouldn't be. But for mm. the sake of discussion, you have the polarization between left and right or alt-right and, you know, like, you know, far left. You have polarization in political views, on um, social views, all sorts of things. People are just refusing to talk. People are yelling at each other if they're even talking at all. And and some of this is quite honestly just being sanctioned by, you know, certain leadership in in the U.S., you know, in parts of Europe, do you think that the pendulum swings the other way? Like, what can we do to close this gap? How do we get people talking like this again? Um, well, I mean, I, how we get people talking, uh, I'm not too sure because it's it's we're now become so dependent on social media and it's made it so easy to just put stuff out there that some people just read it and think it's factual and, and nobody checks things anymore. And so, so how do we actually have conversations? Uh, I don't necessarily know the answer to that one. I think what we're seeing now is, is very similar maybe to the hunger games, but this is more <laughs> of the privilege games. I think privilege is up for grabs and everyone is trying to figure out how it should be distributed. Those who have traditionally held on to power are trying to hold on to it. Those people who are more socialist in nature are trying to get it spread amongst more people. Uh, so you, th- I think, you know, privilege is like the big pinata and everybody's trying to figure out how do we get the candy to, to fall and some just want all of it. Some want to even distribute and I think that's kind of where the world is right now because so many of the old structures are about to fall and crumble and people want to know once it crumbles what's going to happen and they want to have some kind of say in how that privilege is distributed who holds on to the power who gets more power than they've ever had before and then what are they going to do with it mm-hmm. and these sorts of things so I think you know the the people realize that there's a huge shift that's happening right around the globe in terms of um, old power uh, that is that is crumbling, uh, old infrastructure that is that is falling, and people are now trying to position themselves for what pieces am I going to be able to access once this happens? And I think you know people right now are only speaking with their like-minded peers. Right. They're not necessarily speaking with the person on the complete opposite side to figure out, hey, okay, when this falls. What, what could make you happy that also makes me happy, right? Is there a middle ground here right. between what you're saying and what I'm saying? Because it doesn't have to be this absolute and it doesn't have to be this absolute. Maybe there's something that works for everybody, right? Um, because not everybody is socialist in nature. As you said, not everybody is, you know, capitalist. I need everything in nature. Um, but again, you get grouped into alt-right or left, socialist, this, that, and then you feel like, okay, well, this is what I'm called. So now I have to be all of these things. But you can be socialist here, and complete capitalist in right. this other way. Um, and, and that's how diverse people are, right. right? That's why I always have issues, you know, when I look at the states and it's like, okay, Democrat or Republican, I'm like, how is it that defined? Yeah. Like, I am I could be very liberal here, but very conservative yeah. over here. So then how do I vote, right? Because there's only two options here, right? And I think it, it there's nobody who's really that, cut and dry right so it just makes things very difficult and until we find a way to have discussions often with people who are the complete opposite Mm -hmm. of us 
um, nothing's going to change. But our our general nature is to have conversations who are just with people who are just like us because we don't like the friction and we don't like the 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 intellectual you know going back and forth and sometimes the people on the extremes aren't really that intellectual anyway so i right. mean it might not be the best conversation to have you kind of need more you know moderates to actually have uh, a genuine conversation about why they think uh, you know, the world should be organized a certain way and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and the extremes tend to be, you know, the activists who are out there that we see on TV or, or, or whatever, but there's probably way more moderates than there are the people mm-hmm. on, on the extremes. And we have to figure out ways to be able to share ideas uh, in the most productive way possible. I, I actually love, you know, when I tweet stuff out and people disagree with me because it gives an opportunity to have a right. conversation about something. Yep. I want to know why do you disagree? And not because I don't think you should disagree. I want to know what has been your life, what has been your life experience mm-hmm. that makes you think that? Because obviously my life experience makes me think this, but I might be able to learn something right. from you. You might be able to learn something from me and then we keep it moving. Right. right. And I have these little discussions with people like on Twitter and all this stuff all the time. People I don't know, I don't follow them. Maybe they saw, you know, a hashtag or whatever, and then they wrote me, and then we just end up having this conversation. And then when it's done, it's done. You go on with your life, I go on with mine. But we've engaged in some kind of discourse that hopefully is productive by by you know the end of that discourse. And I think, you know, we need more um, of that. How do we achieve that more? I have no idea. I'm not sure. You know, I just try in my own little world to do what mm-hmm. I can on a on a grander scale. I don't know how that happens, but. Um, I believe that at the end of the day, I can only control myself and my environment. So I do what I can. And if other people see it and are inspired by it, then maybe they, you know, do the same. And, you know, you get a little snowball effect of activity happening. But, you know, I, I, I can only focus on, you know, my contribution to right. that and then and, and keep it going from there. Yeah, it's true. We are, uh, we're not nearly that binary. We're all these complex, mm-hmm. moving, ever-evolving pieces, like what I think today I might not think tomorrow. And, Absolutely. Uh, and yet we float in echo chambers all the time. Mm-hmm. Dwayne, I, I really appreciate your time. Where can, where can folks find out more about you and, and keep up to date on all of the incredible things that you're doing? All right. Well, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, again, it was a great conversation. Uh, people can find me on my website, DwayneMorgan.ca. And on Twitter and Instagram at Dwayne underscore Morgan. Awesome. That's a wrap. If you'd like to support the Awoken Word podcast, there are many ways you can do it. You can subscribe in your app of choice. We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or tune in, for example. The biggest thing that you can do is rate this podcast and leave your review in iTunes or wherever you listen to it. You can also talk about this podcast, its guests, or the ideas shared on it in your own podcasts. If you find benefit in this show, tell your friends, tell your family, and even more importantly, tell your enemies. They'll appreciate it too. And of course, You can also follow us on social media, particularly on Twitter. Our handle there is at Awoken Word, on Instagram as at Awoken Word Podcast, or on our Facebook page. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated.